This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, uh, this is Lynn Ponton, and I'm here with Jen, and we are uh, on with Let's Talk About Sex. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about sexual abuse, sexuality, and then eating problems and eating disorders. So uh, it's a subject that really has wide extension uh, to many individuals, and I think it'll be really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, I was inspired by this time of year. I notice a pattern, the spring that is. There seems to be an increase in the number of people being referred around eating disorders or patients of mine, clients of mine having friends who are dealing with eating disorders. And I think people don't always associate it with sexuality, but it's really about the body. It's really about a lot of the dynamics that happen around our bodies. And it affects very much, you know, our our sexuality overall. Um, this uh, spring, and it's May here in San Francisco, a lot of water, a lot of climate change, uh, but uh, experiencing a number of patients who are just beginning to restrict or, and I also have a lot of uh, young women and young men who've been sexually abused, and they have very, very high rates of disordered eating. Interestingly enough, it's not a question that's asked that often on an intake in terms of whether you've had sexual abuse experiences, that's often included in the intake, but they don't ask about your patterns with eating. I think I've learned over the years from my patients to really do that. Uh, The rates are at least doubled, maybe even tripled after you have the experience of sexual abuse. So I think to be aware of that for many young people, that's a, a coping strategy. They'll develop, you know, an eating problem, either restriction or most likely a binge purge cycle. Uh, in compensation for how badly they feel about uh, the abuse that they've suffered. Yeah, I think that in our society, we really have this belief around power and control and that in order to gain power, we have to control things. And so when you've been sexually abused, a lot of times that's affecting your body and you want to find a way to take control over it again and, and be the one in charge of it. And yet these pathways are unhealthy pathways. Yeah, no, they really are. Yesterday I saw a young woman, Maya, and she uh, had been uh, sexually abused uh, by her coach, actually her swim coach, which isn't that unusual. I think that a coach would be involved in abuse of a young woman. And her coping strategy, she felt like he was binging on her body. And the only way she could wrestle back control was to really begin binging binging with food. And uh, it led to a very unfortunate cycle that she's still really not been able to break a number of years later. Yeah. And was she aware of this connection from 
the time you met with her or was it something that kind of unfolded as you guys were talking? It's really interesting because it's as you said, Jennifer, that they, uh, the earlier therapist didn't ask about it. So she really wasn't being treated for that at all. They acknowledged the abuse that had come to the surface, but they really had not asked questions in this area. And this was the area that held on because uh, what is known is that many young women and men who have eating disorders, if you've been abused, it's much, much more difficult to treat. So you really have to get in there and do a lot of work and make headway with it. Well, it's also realizing that it really shifts your beliefs if you have an underlying system or you have an underlying belief system that has to do with like, I have to binge and purge in order to control the binging that happened over my body. You know, like that's like, maybe you can do some work in controlling your consumption of food, but you're not addressing the underlying issue there. You're really not. Uh, you know, you have a compensation that's kind of put in over the top, but right. long-term binging and purging can affect many parts of the body, certainly the teeth, if you're vomiting, the esophagus, if you're vomiting and you might potentially rip that, yeah. those small blood vessels in that area. And then there's a whole range of other health-related problems which happen with it. And for this young woman who was a swimmer, she really lost a lot of her capacity to engage in her sport yeah. because of this whole other problem, the compensation that she had for the, the abuse. And I think being able to recognize these connections is really helpful to people because then you can start to actually manage what has shifted. I mean, the, the other challenge is that when you are engaged in some type of disordered eating, that changes your frame and it, it changes your thinking patterns. So sometimes the thinking pattern has changed first and the eating disordered eating is a product of that. But other times you're starting the disordered eating from another place and the thoughts take over. And it both the behavior patterns, uh, the bulimia and the binge purge and the anorexia change your thinking patterns. You right. know, they have questions about whether it's changes in nutrition that really herald that, and that might be part of it. But I think it works both ways. I think your mind changes some. Yeah. You know, maybe you'd adopt this as a compensation, and then you continue to do it, and your brain reinforces it, you know, with the unhealthy eating pattern you've now adopted and the low blood sugar and everything else. Well, I think it also brings us this I, I brings up this idea of control and what we believe control will give to us, you know, yeah. because when we're controlling something, we're having to think about it all the time. And that really is not the same thing as being free from it, which is what I think people are really chasing. Yeah. Well, that is is so similar, I think, to post-traumatic stress disorder, where you're trying to avoid thinking about one thing, but you're actually re-triggering it constantly. Right. And in the compensating eating disorder, it's a similar pattern. So how do you truly break free from something like sexual abuse when you've got post-traumatic stress disorder, you've got an eating disorder? You have all of these things that keep it going, really. 
I think it's about looking at the connections and understanding how they all play off of each other and how they play into each other. Being able to look mm -hmm. at the thought patterns that are driving you to engage in these behaviors and being able to, I think a big part of talking with a therapist is in peeling away the layers of shame around it so that you can start to make choices that are different. And the uh, layers of silence. Yes. You were talking that's about a huge that part of it. earlier that there's so much silence around both abuse and the compensation of an eating disorder. Um, in preparation for this podcast, we were talking or reading an article by Colin Ross, who was talking about the eating disorders as providing an illusion, really, of control over yeah. things. And it's not that it really gives you control. In fact, if anything, you're caught in a deeper morass but it, it does give you the illusion, I think, of control. Yeah. And I think it can be a helpful place to start when you feel your life is totally out of sync and it quickly spirals. And that's what makes it so challenging is that at one time it w maybe was sort of helpful for you. You know, your, your body was violated. You're trying to reclaim <laughs> your body. And so not being able to see that where it started could have been helpful, but it becomes this slippery slope yeah. and it's hard to climb back up. What kind of strategies do you use with the patients you work with and helping them? Let's say somebody comes to you and they've had sexual abuse and they have, maybe they have a restrictive disorder. They're restricting food intake. I think the big thing is to help them explore their own process around it. So a big part of it is asking questions that help them to link the two, because a lot of times they feel they're having these separate things. I've been sexually abused and I happen to be dealing with this eating disorder. And so I point out a lot of the similarities around the thinking and I ask them to become really aware of sort of what is going on when they are engaging with food and to explore their emotional connection with it. And that's a beginning to really see the connection, yeah, you know, between food and abuse and how they might fit together in a person's mind. And maybe that structure really helps them to work through it. I mean, I've seen with a patient even such as Maya, once she saw the connection to the abuse, she really wanted to break the binge purge cycle. Right. Because that was a legacy from the abuser. Right. You know, so that helped a lot to get her to that next step. I think the other the other part of it is to help people really look at what control is and whether control is actually giving them the thing they're looking for. So I talk a lot in my practice about the difference between safety and security mm -hmm. and that safety is often something very driven by fear. So it's something that closes you down. It closes you off. When you're in danger, safety mm -hmm. is very important. But when you're no longer in a space that is dangerous, safety becomes sort of a, a golden prison that you're living in. And I think it's helpful. A lot of my clients have said, oh, I've never thought about it that way. And so I find myself saying it more and more. But to really understand that control really falls into that safety category. And what you're really looking for is security, being able to trust yourself, being able to trust your own decisions, being able to redevelop that sense of comfort within yourself. 
And that goes back to Colin Ross's statement that um, the restriction or the binging gives you that illusion, really, of control and safety, but it's not truly a safe place for people. So helping them to seek it out really in other ways. How can you feel safe in other ways? Yeah. You know, meditation, one way to feel safe, uh, mm-hmm. you know, helping others. There's so many ways, you know, and to do it in a reasonable way, you have to help yourself first with right. that too. But but there are other ways to really make a go of that and to feel safe in the world. Well, meditation is a huge one because it helps you with those thoughts. The other is honestly some kind of body work like yoga, I often recommend, because yoga is a way to reclaim your body, but through a healthy lens and through a healthy means. And so I often will help my client understand that what they're doing is they're actually harming their body. And what you want to do is you want to have a healing relationship with your body. Yeah. And that's uh, what a therapy, uh, while you're suffering or struggling with an eating disorder, can really do. Yeah. It can help you develop that healing relationship. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about men with disordered eating. So often it's women who get abused yeah. and have an eating disorder. But I have seen several men who've been abused and... Uh, will develop unhealthy eating patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, the binge disorder, sometimes alcohol binge disorder. Yeah, that's a big one. Where they're taking in a lot of alcohol and really not coping that well with what happened to them. Well, I think men in particular, boys as well, they, they get more socially isolated. Yes. And so they're left to cope in these ways where, you know, they may still hold on to certain ideals of masculinity that are actually very harmful in terms of silencing their emotions, feeling that they have to numb things out. And so they may choose something like alcohol over something food-related, but it's still a similar underlying structure. Yesterday, yesterday was a hard day in the office, Jennifer. I yeah, saw I can imagine. So many people struggling with the abuse problems and then uh, all of these related things. A young man who had been abused by his religious um, uh, mentor yeah. within a church structure. And he was kind of locked in his room. He's in high school, not going to high school, uh, covertly drinking and talking to his father about how we can, you know, help him get out of this pattern of drinking in his room alone. And as you were talking about being very isolated, and I think a lot of men will isolate themselves a great deal after uh, abuse situation. And that's one of the biggest problems with abuse is the isolation that people move into afterwards. Well, there's so much shame. And I think it's really about, like I said earlier today, is peeling back those layers to help them understand the shame, understand the beliefs that they're carrying with them that are not helpful for them. Yeah. Beliefs about them not being masculine, beliefs about them being weak. Yeah. You know, a lot of men, unfortunately, are afraid of it, meaning that they're gay. And so there's all kinds of beliefs that aren't true and aren't helpful. But without somebody there to walk them through it, they hold on to these beliefs and they change their behavior so that they avoid having that conversation. 
well, this young man, you know, he was only talking with his sister and his father in the house. And he was worried, as you were suggesting, that if he were to go to high school, all the boys would know he'd been abused because it'd been in the paper. They hadn't had his name, but everybody guessed it was him. So he had a kind of structure built up where isolation was really the only way to protect him. Mm-hmm. It was scary, I think, to see how quickly a life can become very restricted and eating disorders really restrict your life greatly. Oh, yeah. I mean, not to mention that particularly in situations like anorexia, you're physically unwell. And so Mm -hmm. not being able to go places that you would want to go or if you're purging constantly, you know, and you're underweight, then you have literally no energy to do things anymore. Yeah, and that's what his dad was struggling with, and many parents, I think, struggle with is how do we get our child out, out of the room, yeah, into activities, back to school or, or life activities, you know, and that's what many of our family members with individuals who have this problem are struggling with. You know, it's a victory when they're going out for the day and they're doing things and they're reinvolving themselves with life. Yeah, I think it's also recognizing how intense these experiences are and that it's important to celebrate those small victories because internally they're actually huge victories. Yes, they really are internally. And I think I agree with you completely. You know, so this cycle is not an easy one. You've had a hard week too. You had mentioned too uh, when we were talking earlier that you suffered the death of a friend and, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the same issues you know, came up around that, you know, silencing and um, which we see all the time in America, you know, around death and not really acknowledgement of the loss that many of us experience with death. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm still processing it. And it's, I think I'm still in shock, but I kind of go in and out of it. He he was very young, he was 30. Um, But it, it does get me thinking a lot about how silence keeps us isolated and how not being able to talk about loss actually makes loss much more challenging because loss is a part of our lives. But if we're not prepared for it, then when it happens, we're just totally thrown for a loop. And um, I think it, interestingly enough, it got me thinking a lot about how some of these mechanisms also play into our conversations around sex or lack thereof. Yeah. Well, both eating disorders and and abuse, they're great losses. Absolutely. In a life much like death, you know, death of a friend or partner. And Mm -hmm. um, they're really things that we have to explore in a very in-depth way and ideally with friends and support and ritual and culture. Yeah. And if we don't have that available, as we don't in America, often we don't have the support network, then really where do we go? And many people end up in yours and my offices. Yeah. But there has to be really more than that, you know, a coping structure. You mentioned friend group was helpful around the death of your friend. Mm-hmm. Being able to share online about our experiences and stories of him definitely, I think, make a difference. One other thing that came up as you were talking is I think it's actually very interesting that I haven't thought this through. So it's just coming off mm-hmm. the top of my head, but 
now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's almost these types of sexual losses are almost harder for people to deal with because when you're losing a friend, it's obviously, excuse me, it's obviously hugely devastating. And yet you, you know on some level that that friend is gone. Whereas when you're losing something like the relationship that you have with your body, it's not really gone. Like your body mm -hmm. still exists. You still exist in it. So you're grieving something that's there. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot more to unpack there, but that just kind of struck me right now. I think it's more confusing. Yeah. Um, because if you still have the body, but it's become kind of a different body. Right. And distance from you. It's harder to know how to process it. Yeah. And, you know, death, you can close it off. You've lost the person. The person's gone. Uh, there's lots of unhealthy strategies you can do with death loss. Oh, absolutely. But body loss is really more complicated because ideally you would work hard to reclaim it because, as you said, the body's still there. But many people don't, and they never get it back. And we see this with obesity. We see this with so many body, you know, issues. Right, right. Um, so I do think it, you need more help to really do that. And they don't talk about just how much help you need uh, to get out of one of these unhealthy eating patterns. Well, I think also to recognize that it's not just about the food. I mean, exactly. I think so many people yeah. feel bad because they can't follow this diet or they can't follow this nutrition plan. But we don't think about, well, what's actually sabotaging your ability to, to follow through with this? A lot of times it's not just about willpower. It's about these underlying beliefs that nobody's ever helped you to dig up. And so... You know, yeah. if, if you have a belief about like your unworthiness, mm -hmm. which a lot of people have after an experience that is, you know, sexual abuse, then you're constantly feeding that without realizing that you're doing that. And if you're very sad and the binging or the vomiting or the restriction helps you. Um, There's a comfort there. Exactly. And you, you know, back to the illusion of safety with it, you feel that it provides that. Mm -hmm. And I see so many people who really use food in our culture to comfort themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, we need to talk to our friends. We need to support the structures there. We need to encourage people who have been sexually abused and develop an eating disorder to really go to therapy. That's a group, I think, yes. almost impossible to get better without it. Yeah, it's really, yeah. really challenging. Because yeah. if you cannot see the patterns, then you cannot actually do the work that allows you to heal. So um, what this brings up is that um, my husband's sister, she was going through this process herself around wanting to change her relationship with food. And she did some sort of self-CBT type of exercises where she was looking at her thought patterns and changing her behavior. And what was so fascinating for her was that it wasn't until after she did some of this work that she was able to shift her relationship with food. And I think that's just a testament to how powerful our emotional relationship to food is and that People look at eating disorders and often focus on just the food, or some people even recognize the anxiety in it, but they don't see how it's all tied together. 
And if you try to tackle the food piece without tackling the underlying emotional issues, it really doesn't get very far. And then people feel bad themselves as if they've failed. Yeah. And you're, you're really, I think, pointing out a very valuable tool in our work um, you know, starting with Aaron Beck and his team at the University of Pennsylvania, we're actually trained. You know, they work on changing our thoughts and uh, thought patterns and thinking. That helps so much with anxiety to acknowledge what our faulty thinking patterns really are, our false beliefs, really, right? That support a structure like this. And your sister in law is really very brave. Oh, you absolutely. Know, to go forward on her own and to make these choices. And there's some really very good books on this currently that are out there self-help for all of us mm -hmm. <laughs> and just to say Jim we both read self-help oh, so yeah. that's important I love self-help yeah books. but they really emphasize the faulty thinking pattern involved both in eating disorders anxiety all of these things so it's important I think to know about that and for everybody to be informed about how helpful that can be it can start you on that cycle of getting better Right. And I think it, it's also helpful to see that it doesn't just apply to people who are in a more severe situation where they're having an actual diagnosable eating disorder, but really that being able to make these connections between our emotional experience and our relationship with food, I think that's such a valuable tool for so many people. Yeah. Well, this has been very helpful to me, too, to even talk about it. There's a healing power in even discussing these things yeah. and how hard this work is on either side, whether you're out in the world and coming in for treatment or whether you're the therapist. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy, and yet the conversations, they're powerful. And yeah. so thanks for sharing, Lynn. Thank you. Come on. Let's talk about sex.